Welcome to Leading Grace, a listener-supported podcast from the Free Grace Alliance about working together to take the gospel of God's grace to the world. Welcome, fellow Free Gracers. I'm your host, Grant Hawley, and I'm here today with someone many of us in the Free Grace movement love and thank the Lord for, Dr. Jody Dillo. Jody is the author of The Reign of the Servant Kings and its extended edition, Final Destiny, along with the pre-flood vapor canopy, Speaking in Tongues, and Solomon on Sex. Say hi, Jody. Hello. <laughs> hey, welcome. So to start out today, I'd love to hear about how you came to faith in Christ and how you came to believe in free grace theology. Okay. Um, I came to Christ while I was a college student. <clears throat> um, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I had great parents, but they were not believers. And uh, when I graduated from high school, I was pretty immature. In fact, I would say very immature. I've often thought my dad should have just thrown me in the army for a couple of years so I could grow <laughs> up. And so college, <clears throat> where I was majoring in electrical engineering, was just kind of an extension of high school to me and a uh, place to have a party <laughs> rather than serious study. And I remember one of our keg parties, uh, my sophomore year, uh, we were having a good time out in some barn somewhere. And there was a young lady there that uh, really drew my attention. She was very attractive. And so I went up to her and I asked her if she'd go out with me. Seemed a little hesitant, but uh, eventually she said, okay. She was going to a different school about an hour away, Willamette University. So the following Friday night, I picked her up and we were going to go out to dinner. And uh, she, within 15 minutes, she was talking to me about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, this was not what I had in mind for the evening. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But she was really neat. We had a, a good discussion for, uh, oh gosh, probably two and a half hours. Uh, I didn't believe any of it, but I was interested in her. And I was kind of curious about the existence of God and some of that stuff. But we fell very much in love. I would say she was the first girl I ever loved. And uh, we came back for my sophomore year. Uh, I spent about a week at her house, which was an hour from the Oregon State University campus. She was in Springfield, Oregon. And uh, when it came time for me to leave, I had to catch a bus to go back to the fraternity house. And I missed the bus. And she uh, had to drive me up. And it was dark. And she dropped me off around 9, 10 o'clock that night. And then she headed back home. And about 3 a.m. in the morning, I got a call from the highway patrol. Uh, Mikey, that was her name, Michael Ann, we called her Mikey, was killed mm. in an automobile accident. And I was uh, completely devastated. Uh, my grades dropped. I picked up a couple of Fs. And... Uh, I was, I'd never been in a situation like this. I had no foundation for handling this kind of grief. The day after she uh, died, I took a taxi down to her home in Springfield. And I'll never forget when her parents, Jane and Lloyd Thomas, 
who became mom and papa to me. They came out of the house with tears in their eyes and they put their arms around me. And they said, Jody, we understand the grief you're going through and we want to help you in any way that we can. Mm. Well, I was just blown away. It was their daughter. <clears throat> and yet they were actually reaching out to me. And we went in the house and they started talking to me a little bit about Jesus. And I wasn't too interested, but uh, at any rate, for the next year, I came down to their house probably once a month for a weekend. And we talked a lot about the Christian faith. And I had all these objections to Christianity. They were not very well taught. Uh, Mom and I used to stay up pretty late at night talking about some of this stuff, but she didn't have a lot of good answers. But what she did have was love. And uh, I often say that she loved me into the kingdom. And the following summer, I was at their home for about a month working at a lumber mill. And uh, uh, she wanted me to go to a Christian college conference at Mount Hermon in California. And that was not my idea of fun. Uh, so I started to make excuses. <laughs> I said, uh, Mom, I don't have any money. I, I just couldn't afford it. Jody, you see the trim on that house? It needs to be painted. So that erased that objection. And then, but Mom, it's too far away from where I live in Sunnyvale, California. Jody, it's 45 minutes from your house. <laughs> so reluctantly, but with curiosity, I have to admit, I went. I was the only non-Christian there. And during that time, I met a young lady called Linda Nelson. She was a brand new believer herself, about three months old, four months old in the Lord. And uh, she had come to Christ through Campus Crusade for Christ at the University of Oregon. And we started to go out and kind of see one another at the conference ground. and. Uh, I don't know, by the end of that week, I, something happened to me. I found myself believing it. Uh, and I thought, well, if I believe it now, somehow things just came together. I can't really explain it, but all of a sudden I, I believed it was true. So uh, we, uh, I went to one of the counselors who was a pastor and I asked him, what are the terms? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? And he, he explained the gospel to me. And, uh, and I was struck by the fact that this was all free. And uh, works, it didn't have to make a lot of commitments at that point, although I was thinking about commitments I might have to make. I have to admit that because I knew that my life would have to change. Mm -hmm. Um, but at any rate, uh, I said, okay, well, how do I do this? So we went up on top of a mountain. These things always happen on tops of a mountain. And you can look out over the Sierra Nevadas, beautiful moonlit night. And I said, look, I've never prayed before. So will you pray and I'll pray after you. I was an evangelist dream. Oh, wow. 
And uh, so at any rate, that, that night I invited Christ into my heart, trusted him for forgiveness of sins. I remember the next morning, uh, these kids were doing something they called having a quiet time. I didn't know what that was exactly, but you were supposed to go out and read your Bible and pray. And I thought, well, I'm in the club now, so I guess I better do that. So, <laughs> so I went out and I, where do I start? So I started in Genesis and I got to Genesis 5, so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. Uh, this isn't going to work. So I jumped to the New Testament, started with Matthew. And it was so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. So I thought, this isn't going to work. So I just opened randomly to a book. I think it was Second First Corinthians. And the reason I'm reciting this is that I had an experience with God when I opened that book. I had read a lot of the New Testament the preceding year. But somehow when I opened 1 Corinthians and I was reading it, I felt I was connecting with God. It was a whole new experience. This wasn't just a cerebral reading, but something had gone on in my heart. And that was my first excitement about scripture. Wow. And over the next weeks and months, my entire life was transformed. And as a result, I, uh, about a year and a half later, I bailed out of electrical engineering because Linda and I decided we wanted to be missionaries. And I was able to graduate in three and a half years in science because I had all those science courses from my time in electrical engineering. So that's how I became a Christian. And uh, it was a dramatic uh, transformation, immediate in my case. And all that immaturity, began to dissolve, my language cleaned up, my partying and all that. I no longer had a desire to do it. And it wasn't like I had embraced a new religion or hobby, it was something that was going on internally where I just didn't want to do some of the stuff I used to do and I wanted to do the stuff I should. So is that Linda Nelson? Is that now Linda Dillo? Oh yeah, I forgot to mention the good part. Uh, a year later, <laughs> uh, Linda and I got married. Oh, wow. And it's during our senior year of college. And we're now, we've been married 58 years this September. And Linda Dillo is the best thing that's ever happened to me besides coming to know Jesus. Wow. Oh, thanks for that. Um, so I know that you spent some time ministering behind the Iron Curtain. And I would love to hear just whatever you'd like to share about that. Yeah, when I graduated from Dallas in uh, 69, uh, I got involved in uh, Campus Crusade. In fact, I was on student staff at Dallas. We ministered with Crusade for a number of years, total of eight years, actually. But I, um, I began to have an academic bent, uh, which would have shocked my parents. <laughs> but... Uh, so I went and applied for the doctoral program in 74 and got through and uh, got my PhD in 77, as I recall, 77, 78. Do you say that was from Dallas? PhD. Yeah, that's from Dallas. Yeah. But Linda and I had been writing missionary uh, 
societies to see if there's some place where we could fit. About this time, Dean Concert Trinity called me and wanted me to consider joining the faculty at Trinity. Uh, wow, well, I guess that's why you get a PhD. So I was more and more academically interested. So we moved to Deerfield and I taught at Trinity for a semester. And during that time, uh, Bud Hinkson, who followed me up as a new believer, he was the director of Campus Crusade in the Northwest and at University of Oregon. Uh, he came through and tried to recruit me to uh, his latest vision in Eastern Europe. And Bud came through every year with a new, new idea. So I was interested, but <laughs> he, he was the arch recruiter. And Linda and I were at a pie shop and he started to talk about the need to launch an extension biblical training program behind the Iron Curtain. Okay. And this has only happened to me a couple of times, uh, but I had an aha moment with God. I had an overwhelming sense of certainty come over me. I'm supposed to do this. I had no idea how to do it. <laughs> uh, so I turned to Linda and I said, honey, we're going. And she gulped and said, okay. And about eight months later, we were in Vienna, Austria. Wow. And uh, the missionaries used Vienna as a launch point to get behind the Iron Curtain because all of the uh, embassies, Romanian, Polish, Russian, were in, were in Vienna. So you had, you had to get some kind of visa to get across that border. <clears throat> and uh, so at any rate, uh, a couple of, uh, about a year after I got there, there was an intermission conference I think there was about 20 missions there and probably 10 or 15 believers from behind the Iron Curtain. And apparently all these missions had been listening to people that they were working with. Mainly they were Bible smugglers or compassion, blankets, penicillin, clothing, food, this kind of stuff. But they were getting requests all the time for advanced biblical training from the pastors. So I went there actually uh, on associate staff of Crusade, just wanting to know, gee, I wonder who I'm gonna work for. And it was just a fabulous time. I've been in a lot of meetings, but this one, we all felt that God had done something because all these missions wanted to unite on a united project instead of everyone, you know, build their own extension training program. I think 12 missions committed originally and then Paul Stanley, who was uh, one of my best friends, he was the vice president of the navigators at the time. He was also, no, I guess he was in charge of the navigator work in Eastern Europe and Russia. He got up and said, uh, you know, guys, God has really met us, but this is not going any place unless we have a leader. And I thought, yeah, I wonder who I'll work for. <laughs> and, then, and then Stanley says, I'd like to nominate Jody Dillon. Paul, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I've, I've had one trip behind the Iron Curtain. We've got all these seasoned missionaries. Uh, I think the reason he, uh, they accepted it is because I was the only one in the room with a doctor's degree. And there's only two of us available to take the job. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, Al Bridges and I, uh, started this thing in uh, by taking trips that fall in 79. First trips were to Romania 
and God just blessed it. Everything we did just seemed to work. And then, you know, every time we needed new people, somebody would show up. I think we ended up with about 200 staff. Mm. We were operating well in every country, Russia, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, whatever, we were in East Germany. And uh, basically what we did is that we launched the, the, the philosophy that I was carrying was Second Timothy 2, 2, which was Campus Crusade mantra, mm -hmm. uh, things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who are able to teach others also. So apparently Paul had four generations of multiplication in mind. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others also. So what the philosophy was, we used to do this in Campus Crusade, so I thought we'll just up it from the 10 basic steps, which was a basic training program Crusade had, to a first year Bible college level curriculum. Okay. And make that so it could multiply. So what that required is a teaching method that the nationals could duplicate, which for the most part eliminated lecture. Uh, they just couldn't do what you know we were trained to do. Mm -hmm. And it also required a uh, transferable curriculum uh, that the net nationals could teach. So to achieve those two objectives, we taught by means of facilitation. And when we came to a group, uh, we had three objectives. One was to talk about how it applied to their walk with God. Two, uh, about how to pass it on to others and how to teach others. And three, uh, how to expand it more broadly through multiplication in your own ministry. Wow. And it just worked. And uh, the curriculum was three or 400 pages. And there were reading assignments, uh, sometimes in textbooks, some, always in scripture, and then a series of questions. And when we met with them, it was basically interactive on the questions. We had to model a way of teaching that they could duplicate. Okay. And our goal was at the end of every course, or then if I had three or four courses, everybody in the first generation group, the Timothys, had to have a second generation group, or they couldn't continue in the training. Okay. And it worked. Wow. And I think we had about an 80% ratio of the people in first generation groups had second generation. And by the time we left Vienna, I think 14 years later, uh, there was probably over 25,000 involved. And there were, uh, I don't know how many, you know, groups. There was, it was 80% being taught by the nationals, That's not incredible. by us. Wow. And the thing that excites me is that I really had nothing to do with that. All I did was get it started. And then God took it over and <laughs> made it happen all over Eastern Europe. It seemed that everything we tried just worked. And I've been in a lot of situations where things didn't work. And I know the difference when I'm kind of pushing to make something happen and when God's in it. So those turned out to be some of the most exciting ministry years of our lives. Without going, getting into the details on this, our next move was on to Hong Kong, 
well, he started to work in China, Vietnam, uh, and uh, South Korea. And uh, now we're, I don't know, I think we're in about 60 countries all over the world. Wow. And the last number I've heard, uh, I don't like to talk about numbers, but because it's a God thing, not me or us. And it was all done by nationals, but there's over 750,000 uh, pastors and church leaders who have been through a lot of these courses all over the world. Hmm. So did you... And, you spent some time in Asia as well, in those those places? Well, yeah, we were in Hong Kong for four years. Okay. What was that like? Probably the most significant thing we did was help BE Korea get launched. Uh, those guys have about, oh, they've had several hundred, oh, that 750 figure. <laughs> they probably got half of it. Wow. Now, I'm still the president of uh, BE Korea. Uh, Dr. Moon, Moon Jung Kim, uh, and I said, uh, Moon, they, they were coming to the States. I said, Moon, when you come to the States, let us know so we can get out of the way. <laughs> but anyway, that turned out to be probably one of the main reasons God took me to, uh, took Linda and I to, uh, to Hong Kong was to get that thing launched in Korea. But we did get it going in China, uh, Vietnam, South Vietnam, and uh, and in South Korea. And I think I think we started in Myanmar and Nepal during that era. Wow, that's great. So um, I've definitely got some people who are interested in getting involved in ministry in, in Korea. So, you know, if you have any connections over there, if you'll send those to me, that would be amazing. I definitely do. I can send you Moon's email and uh if they just contact moon he will direct their email to the to the relevant person wonderful they're all over the world i think they're in 60 countries <laughs> that's fantastic yeah so, I, um uh, i love that kind of stuff that's you know that's why free grace alliance exists is so we can make these kind of connections and sure all that so well, i think moon would be very excited to get some people great great so uh what made you decide to get involved with the free grace alliance well, during my time at Dallas, uh, I was struck by the fact that the general position there that I heard from a number of professors was a distinction between discipleship and salvation. And I agreed with that distinction. But I saw so many passages that seemed to say that uh, works were involved in salvation. You know, like what Romans 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, or what is it, John 5.29, uh, where it says basically eternal life is granted to works. Mm -hmm. Paul seems to say something similar in Romans uh, 2. So I was kind of troubled by that. And uh, I know that the faculty was trying to say, well, that's salvation or that's uh, sanctification. At least some of them, I remember Pentecost used to emphasize that. But I, the biblical basis to me looked like those verses were talking about getting to heaven when you die by means of works. Mm -hmm. And also uh, I was troubled by the doctrine of eternal security. 
because I could see their verses, those who denied eternal security. And they were plausible. I could see their exegetical arguments. And I wasn't too satisfied with the reformed arguments that I picked up at Dallas, mm -hmm. namely that those people who fall away never had it to begin with. So, and I was aware of this guy named Zane Hodges. In fact, I had him for baby Greek. He was a really good teacher. But I was just totally skeptical mm -hmm. because any passage you brought up, he had some novel interpretation of it. So I didn't take any classes from him. And when I got out of Dallas and over into uh, Eastern Europe, I picked up Zane's exegetical tapes on Hebrews. And I loved it. Uh, this is wonderful. I don't have to twist things to explain Hebrews 6. So I'm, I'm meeting with a group of Romanian believers. This is what really got me into free grace, it's seriously. Uh, and I taught them verse by verse through Hebrews 1 to 6 over about 30 hours. And they had never heard anything like this. You know, it was all topical sermons or, you know, here's this guy picking through verse by verse, like they teach you in Dallas. And they would say, fantastic, fantastic. And uh, I, I never had that response teaching Bible studies in Dallas. <laughs> but they were just really hungry. And then we got to uh, Hebrews 6. And they absolutely could not believe that I believed in the doctrine of eternal security. It's obvious that Hebrews 6 is saying you can lose it. Now, I was explaining basically what I learned from Zane. I was taking his approach mm -hmm. to these warning passages. Well, they wanted me to come back in a couple of weeks and do a uh, three-day seminar on predestination and eternal security. <laughs> so I, I did. It was a, it was a wonderful time, and I went through all the arguments for eternal security. And I basically, uh, I think most of them were persuaded, oh, wow. except one definitely wasn't. But all the rest of the guys, it was there was no argument or tension. It was just a lot. It was a lot of fun. But on the way home, I realized I was inconsistent because I was answering the warning passages in Hebrews from the standpoint that these were true believers who were falling away from their walk with Christ mm -hmm. becoming carnal believers. But I was answering all the other warning passages like uh, John 15, the branches that are cut off, they were in Christ and they're cut off. Mm -hmm. I was answering that from the reform perspective Namely, those guys were never really Christians to begin with. So I was inconsistent in how I was handling all these warnings throughout the New Testament. And that inconsistency is what drove me to research this in minute detail. And I worked on that for about eight years, trying to, you know, I went through all of, you know, Armenian textbooks on eternal security and everything. And I tried to tried to address every passage I knew about. And that resulted in 
uh, the reign of the servant kings. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, then over the period of time after that, I, uh, you know, I'd get feedback, sometimes criticism, sometimes questions. And there's journal articles and some books and whatnot. So that spurred me on to dig deeper. I knew there was a lot of passages I hadn't covered. Mm -hmm. So over the next about 12 years, I worked, well, it was more than that. Yeah, it was about 12 years. Yeah. Um, nonstop, well, every free moment. I'm <laughs> uh, trying to cover every passage in the Bible. The problem, you run into in this is that you come up with an interpretation of one passage and even if it's plausible mm -hmm. it's related to a whole slew of other passages there's a whole web of interconnected passages so you don't have a valid interpretation unless you could also explain the, the interconnected web mm -hmm. so that's what drove me to write final destiny i was going to go through that whole web and get every one of them if I could. <laughs> and uh, so at any rate, that came out and there's been numerous revisions as you know, I catch errors and think about stuff. Basic message is the same, but it's a pretty different book now. It's up on the internet at my cost, which is 18 bucks. Wow. Uh, and it's now in a little, little bit different format uh, it's a, what, seven by 10 instead of six by nine. Okay. And it's 800 pages because we've got more, more room. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is uh, Amazon won't publish it if it's more than 820 pages. Oh, wow. So I had to redo the whole thing. So it has a different index and everything. But any rate, it's up there. And uh, I have made even a couple of minor tweaks to that one. So that's how I got into Final Destiny. Great. <laughs> Yeah, so the reign of the servant kings was really significant for me um, personally. I uh, it was one of the first uh, books that exposed me to free grace theology, and uh, we got in trouble. I think I told you about it at our church for reading it um, in a small group. So um, yeah, it was you know, but I I've purchased a lot of copies of that and given them out, and I've handed out a few copies of Final Destiny as well. So um, I'm just I'm very thankful for your work on those. So um, to shift the subject a little bit, I I know that uh, you're still really busy and active in ministry, and uh, you know you've been going for several decades at this this thing. And I just uh, want to know what keeps you motivated. Um, you know, I think for me now, I. I all my life, I've had this some compelling vision out in front of me. And I, by nature, I'm wired so that I find life by starting new stuff. So that 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 had been my mo in ministry for years and years. And one of the things about starting new stuff, if it's going to work, you've got to be a hundred percent all in. And I didn't have the energy for that. <laughs> I'm 79. Uh, so I, uh, right now, my motivations are not, 
uh, I don't have that motivation or that vision goal in front of me. And there's times when I, I miss that. But underlying both times uh, when I was doing ministry around the world and today, I think the major motivation that I think about in my motives is what uh, Dr. Toussaint said in a spiritual life class when I was a student there back in 66. And he said his life verse was that passage where uh, Paul says, my, my goal is to please him. And I think about that a lot. And I evaluate uh, a lot of things in terms of how I'm going to say stuff now and what I'm going to put my focus on. Will this please the Lord and will it bring honor to him? So my goal now is whatever he puts in front of me, I say, well, that may or may not really appeal to me, but I sure need to consider it. Mm -hmm. And uh, can, I, can I somehow please him and honor him with my gifts and my background and whatnot? Like, for example, they want me on the uh, missions committee at my church. And say, well, I've been a missionary forever. <laughs> so that seems like what's something he might want me to do. Other than that, I'm, I'm meeting with a number of businessmen. I've taught uh, courses in uh, overseas over Zoom. I speak uh, at our church periodically. And I'm meeting with guys here at BEE, mainly the leadership, trying to encourage them. So it's a totally different kind of, of ministry than, than I've had before. Do you have any advice for younger believers? Um, yeah, um, there's decisions Linda and I made in our 20s that uh, affected the rest of our lives. Uh, some of them are, may seem kind of simplistic. Uh, but they were meaningful to me at the time. They were kind of a stake in the ground. Uh, for example, I read Jonathan Edwards and his uh, resolutions. I think he had 123 of them, as I recall. <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know, I need to do that. I need to put a stake in the ground. So I made some resolutions. For example, uh, I will always be faithful to my wife. Uh, I'll make a covenant with my eyes. I made a resolution about debt. I will never be in debt. Well, it, was a, it was a number of things like this, but that whole thing of making a set of resolutions uh, was critical. I think the other um, major decision, well, there's a number of them, but uh, decision we made in our 20s is that uh, whatever God wanted us to do, 
except build a hut in Africa. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't build it. Uh, we were going to do. And uh, I, I just wanted to be wide open to anything that he wanted. And I didn't want my anything, uh, my comfort or whatnot in America to get in the way of that. We both felt the same way. So that was a, a stake in the ground for me, that whatever it was I was supposed to do, I was going to do it. Uh, we also made decisions in our 20s about ministry and family. I think our, our first baby was born our third year of marriage. And uh, yeah, she she's with the Lord now. She died last year. Her name was Joy. And I remember going to Howard Hendricks' class on the Christian home. And I didn't know anything about a Christian home or what the Bible said or any of this stuff. But <clears throat> one of the things how he talked about was how missionary kids were sometimes not getting the attention or pastor's kids because the, the parents were more concerned about ministry uh, than the kid, their family. So I made a commitment at that point that wherever we went, mission field or whatever God wanted us to do, the priority was going to be God, secondly, my wife, and thirdly, my ministry. And uh, so that was a big decision. It affected a lot of things when we got on the mission field and elsewhere on the kind of decisions we made. So those are three decisions that we look back on that shaped a lot of our future decisions. That's great. Wonderful. So um, one more question, if you got the time. Um, are there one or two things that you think every believer should know about the Christian life? I think the big issue for me, and I, it's it's all over the New Testament, it's for everybody, is uh, how to turn a situation over to the Lord and trust him when you're in the midst of pain or struggle. Um, how to release it to God and experience his peace. And for me, I found that that starts uh, with asking God, what are you trying to teach me about this difficulty or this pain or this trial? Instead of rebelling against it or asking, why are you doing this to me? Which is my, probably most people's <laughs> inclination. I, I've got my mind set to say, okay, Lord, you're, you're trying to say something to me here. So Lord, I'm going to put a stake in the ground now. Whenever I have these thoughts, I'm going to, I make a decision to turn to you, ask your forgiveness if I'm in unbelief or sin or rebellion, and ask you to help me be what you want me to be and what I want to be. So it becomes a pattern of turning to him in the midst of the trial. I call that walking by faith or persevering in faith. So that's a biggie for me. I think the other thing that is very important to me, and I think 
it's neglected in in uh, most of Christendom is the fact of that free grace has accountability. And uh, just because the accountability is in hell, you know, if you're not living the life, uh, but there is accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, boy, basically, the future rewards, if you want to say, boils down to three categories. It's uh, honor, well done, good and faithful servant. It's intimacy, attendance at the Messianic banquet and the wedding feast of the Lamb and other feasts in the kingdom. And thirdly, opportunities for service, five cities, 10 cities. So those are in my mind a lot when I make decisions. And also there's the consequence of divine discipline and time. And uh, in regards to honor, uh, intimacy and opportunities for service, they can be greatly reduced unless I persevere in trusting him. So I think about that. I don't think most Christians are aware that there could be any loss or negativity when Christ evaluates our lives. Now, that is to say people are going to go into eternity with tears in their eyes. The Bible's clear. He's going to wipe away every tear. But there could be a time of profound regret when we look back on our life and we ask, what did it really count for? And uh, I didn't walk with him. So I think grace with accountability is a critical issue for uh, Christians today. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Every time uh, I get to spend a little bit of time with you, I always leave uh, knowing something I didn't know and also just feeling more encouraged about the Christian life and ministry and all that stuff. I'm just, I'm very thankful for our time together today and uh, it's just always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay. It's great to be with you, Grant. Bye-bye. Take care. The Free Grace Alliance has recently introduced institutional memberships and your church, school, or other organization can join. There are lots of benefits for member organizations, including free conference registration for paid staff of the member institutions and access to a 401k plan. Details are at freegracealliance.com. This year, FGA is going for conferences and other ministry to the Dominican Republic, Ghana, Finland, Dubai, Cuba, Washington, and a place in Asia we can't specify for the safety of the people ministering there. The Lord is doing a lot of amazing things through FGA, and we need your financial support. If you think Free Grace is important, please consider giving a monthly donation to the Free Grace Alliance to help us share grace graciously across the world and to enable others to do the same. Your support really is essential, and we can't do this ministry without you. If you haven't seen the spring issue of Leading Grace magazine, there are quite a few articles in there you might find interesting, including an article from our recent guest, Janine McNally, on prioritizing children's ministry, and one that I wrote on Romans 9, a passage that many people find challenging. You can read the magazine online at freegracealliance.com magazine. This year's annual conference is on October 10th through 12th at Bear Creek Bible Church in Keller, Texas, which is about 20 minutes west of DFW Airport. The theme is, what difference does it make? And we'll be exploring the question of why free grace theology matters. We have lots of amazing speakers lined up, including, among others, Dr. David Allen, Dr. Brett Jay, Scott Pollock, and John McRae. 
who is host of the popular YouTube channel, What Do You Mean? Registration is open on our website, and we hope to see you all there. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you would like to become a member of the Free Grace Alliance or to support FGA in its efforts to share grace graciously, you can do that and learn more about FGA at freegracealliance.com.